from the Wisconsin Medical Society that looks at some of the top issues affecting patients and the practice of medicine in Wisconsin. I'm your host, Peter Welch, Vice President of Public Affairs, and this week we're talking about a topic that's one of the Society's top strategic priorities, mental and behavioral health. Nearly one and a half million people in Wisconsin are living with a mental or behavioral health condition, and according to Mental Health America, Wisconsin has the fourth highest prevalence of mental illness in the nation. At the same time, we're experiencing a shortage of psychiatrists and other mental health professionals to provide treatment, an issue that is further compounded by the stigma that often accompanies mental and behavioral health issues. To help address these issues, last fall the Society created a Mental and Behavioral Health Task Force with three main areas of focus, to improve access to care, to increase the mental health workforce, and to reduce stigma associated with mental health. Joining me today to talk about one of these areas, stigma, is Sue McKenzie, director for Rogers in Health and a member of the executive committee for WISE, a statewide coalition that aims to reduce stigma and promote inclusion and support of those affected with mental health challenges. Sue has more than 30 years of experience leading the development of educational programs and collaborative projects, and she has developed a state and national curriculum and led teacher training for community leaders to effectively address mental health challenges. Sue, thanks for being here. Glad to be here, Peter. So let's dive right in. What is stigma? How big of a problem and what impact does it have? Okay, so I'm going to go with the simplest definition I have of stigma, and that is when false ideas influence beliefs and those beliefs turn into behaviors that are discriminatory, isolating behaviors. That's a lot to chew on. <laughs> That's quite the definition. Can you break it down a little bit and sure. walk me through it? Sure. So uh, just going to give you an example. I um, go through life and I have an idea that something like um, schizophrenia is very scary, untreatable, and people that have schizophrenia um, are going to be homeless. And I may get that idea because I've seen it in media or I've seen someone homeless on the street and someone who's told me, oh, this person has schizophrenia. And so my knowledge, and I'm going to use the word ignorance, and I don't mean ignorance in a judgmental way, but I'm ignorant of a, of a lot of information that would change that. And so I then have this belief that I carry into my life, and I meet somebody who is in early stages of psychosis, and I go immediately to fear and helplessness, because I don't have a lot of hope that this person can have a life that maybe I wish for them. So then my behavior is going to be potentially stepping back from that person, because when I don't know what to do and I feel helpless, I might step back. Or I may be so ignorant as to think this person shouldn't be around my children because it's catching, or you know, there's just all kinds of behaviors that can come out of a place of fear and ignorance. And none of it, again, is shame and blame. It's just understanding where do some of our behaviors, how do we walk them back to some of those false ideas. This clearly seems like something that would have large repercussions in the medical field and in patient-physician interactions. Tell me a little bit more about that. How does this affect how the patients get care? So it, when, we, when we ask people with lived experience where they experience stigma, um, Experiencing it actually in healthcare is pretty high on the list of where they report experiencing stigma. 
Now, again, no shame or blame there, and we want to look at lots of different perspectives. It, you know, it, I may be reaching out to my primary care doctor for the very first time, and I may be bringing a lot of fear and my own self-stigma because I've heard the same messages that other people have heard. Um, so I may be coming in with somewhat of a bias that if you say something unexpected that it means that you don't um, care for me or that you're not open to my problems. But the flip side is that physician also lives in this culture and has learned um, some things about mental health, mental health challenges through experience that may be um, false. And so we've got the problem of some false ideas on both sides coming together. And then I think when I look at how physicians are trained, and I happen to have a number of people in my family that are physicians and are in residency and different levels of, of becoming physicians, um, it's really clear that the goal is to be all-knowing when it comes to, to our health. And so the complexity of mental health challenges, I think for all of us, really puts us into a place of needing to work together, not be lone rangers, to admit how much we don't know, and, and that's hard. If you're really trained to be the answer person and gosh, give that answer in 15 minutes or less, mm -hmm. it, it's a hard place to be, I think. Yeah, very complex. Is this stigma, you know, is the issue of stigma something new? Is this something that has uh, increased in recent years? What's, the, what's a little history of stigma in healthcare? Actually, it's been around forever. We can go back and look to just horrendous, it, well, and actually there's parts of the country that still do things like chain people um, who have mental health conditions. And it, it, it's, um, it's been around for a very, very long time. Luckily, I feel like we're in a great place right now, at least in America, to be able to raise these questions up and to challenge some false ideas. Um, and the research has pointed us in some interesting directions. You know, early on in my career, if someone would have said, well, how do we reduce stigma? We would talk about education. Let's go teach people about the brain and what's going on in the brain. And we want everyone to understand that this is a real condition, which is helpful information. But what we discovered was that that actually, in some populations, increase stigma rather than decrease it. Hmm because, and, and a lot of researchers think, as they've worked with different populations, that we tend to think that we're fixable from the neck down and pretty fixed from the neck up. Hmm. And so if I say it's in your brain, and you know, think about how really recent um, brain research is around how really flexible our brains are. Um, so we have this history of believing that what my brain is is what my brain will always be. And so what research has shown really changes stigma is more getting to know people who have mental health challenges that are leading successful lives, that have found effective passive treatment to build our sense of hopefulness in the area of recovery. And that's not all that different than how we used to stigmatize cancer. And when they look at what really changed our stigma towards cancer, it's when people started to understand the different cures or you know what we can do in treatment and began to feel some hope that they they were less stigmatizing so so part of what we want to do with physicians is to increase their understanding of effective treatments and for them to meet people who maybe were very complicated patients at some point and were able to get to a place of recovery that that 
give physicians hope, maybe that they don't have to have the answer for that person, but that they can refer to places and do that from a place of hope versus, well, I'm not sure what to do with you. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating dynamic of, of the physician feeling like they need to be the one to dole out all the answers and the complexities of these mental health patients can be you know, something that goes beyond the training that they maybe got in medical school. So how can we as a society and WISE and other groups help equip them with the skills they need to tackle these challenges? So we've talked before and you've brought up this idea of compassion resilience. Mm -hmm. Tell me what that is and, and how it affects physicians. Well, so all of us, at least my belief, is that all of us would like to be in, in a compassionate place in the world. We'd like to be compassionate when we encounter other human beings. But there's lots of things that kind of take us out of that place of compassion. And some of it is just, um, I can't be 100% compassionate all the time because my tank has to be filled, right? <laughs> and there's some things that are really complex and difficult for me to deal with that make it hard for me to be in a place of compassion because I'm just thrown into, I'm not sure what to do here. And um, so compassion resilience is kind of building that muscle to be able to face a tough situation, face it with as much compassion as I can, and then be able to move into that next situation, kind of bounce back and bring my um, positive compassion to that next situation. And it really is a, uh, there's a lot of skills behind our ability to bounce back when it comes to compassion. So what's the, so it sounds like the alternative might be for a physician to sort of just shut down all compassion, to say, I can't keep up seeing patient after patient and trying to extend something of myself into the treatment of that patient. So rather than exhaust myself, I'm just going to shut down. Mm -hmm. Is that a reaction that, that you see among physicians? Yeah, absolutely. And, and honestly, it, it's, it's interesting to me that the first two skills or strategies that I address when it comes to compassion resilience are realistic expectations of ourselves. Because, you know, I, I look at people in helping professions, and I think they want to be able to be everything they can be for everybody. And so even if that's very internal, and a physician has said, I know I can't deal with these kind of patients, and maybe externally they're coming across as, you know, I, I know this patient isn't for me, I need to just set them aside. There's that internal tension of, but I should be able to help this person. And so I think it's getting realistic expectations that um, the path of recovery for most people that face mental health challenges involves many different supports. And for instance, a primary care physician understanding what what is it that I bring to that puzzle and being really confident and, and okay with that, that I'm just this piece of the puzzle, but my piece is really important. And that means um, having realistic expectations of themselves, first and foremost, and then beginning to have realistic expectations of my encounter with the patient. And, and the next skill we teach is boundary setting, which sounds hard at first, like, oh, I'm gonna say no to people. But we talk about it in terms of compassionate boundary setting, which means early on in a relationship being able to say, this is what I'm gonna be able to do and not be able to do. I've got X amount of time with you. If the reality is I have 15 minutes, being first of all comfortable internally that this is the best I can offer today, and it's okay that that's the best I can offer, and then externally being able to just be honest and say, I wish I could give you an hour. I've got 15 minutes. How do we best use this 15 minutes? 
it, you can see that it's it's still the same. I've only got 15 minutes, but how I feel about it and approach it and then communicate it is all about that skill of being able to communicate those boundaries and expectations. One of the reasons I like this topic a lot from, from my work is it's the intersection of our mental behavioral health efforts as well as our physician wellness efforts. And when you talk about physician burnout, it seems that it's, that's inextricably linked with what you're talking about today. So do you have any thoughts on how this compassion, compassion fatigue and re, compassion resilience uh, intersects with the burnout of physicians? Oh, absolutely. And, and I mean, you look at all kinds of research and physician burnout, physician suicide. I mean, they're really hard topics that we're realizing and trying to address within the medical community. Um, walk back to um, our ability to care for ourselves, the permission to care for ourselves. And, and again, I think a lot of that has to do with our expectations of who we are. I, mean, I say, you know, we work in lots of different environments. So, you know, I'll work with urban school teachers who literally, you know, are in the front lines of trauma. Um, and we're helping them to be able to say to themselves, I can only give 100%. There's no such thing as 150%. I can only give 100%. And I actually can't give 100% 100% of the time. And even though I would love to be able to completely change the lives of every child in my classroom, that's an unrealistic expectation that's going to drag me down and I'm not going to be able to give 100% at any time because I'm not well. And obviously that translates into our work as physicians. We, we need to be able to um, bring our best selves and the only way we can do that if, is if we give ourselves permission to care for that self like we would care for somebody else. Tough stuff. Tough stuff, yeah. This is, it's, it's so interconnected. I want to weave in, too, and get your opinion about uh, the system itself. So this seems like a very individualistic, you know, this is how I, as a physician, am handling the situation. But one of the things we talk about a lot in our physician wellness efforts are how does the system itself play into this? So you say, I only have 15 minutes. That seems like a systemic a limitation, issue. right? So tell me, tell me a little bit about that. I am so glad you brought this up because I actually think it's unethical to address compassion fatigue as an individual issue only. I, right. I really believe that. To say to somebody, you know, be sure you exercise and eat right and meditate and not also say, how do we address the systemic issues that are driving all of this fatigue? It's, it's, just, it's just unethical to, to do that. So yes, I think it takes the guts of people in leadership to really step back and look at the way we think things need to be done. I'm, I'm doing some of this work internally at Rogers Behavioral Health, and you know it, we are talking at a leadership level about how every decision, if compassion is critical in what we do, then how is compassion considered in every decision they make? Not, you know, so there's the financial considerations, there's the compassion considerations. And if, if our psychiatrists, there's things about the system that are taking them away from that place of compassion, that has to be right forefront of that decision making. And that's a change. That's a change. And you know, when you think about whether it's private or public, who's driving those decisions? Um, what do they consider success? Those are big questions. 
So what can let's talk solutions. What mm -hmm. can we do? You know, if you had if you had sort of your unlimited budget or your magic wand, what would you do to address stigma, both for that individual physician and within the system and population as a whole? So that's a huge question. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to research, and and it seems like such a simple part of the solution, but I think it's a critical piece that continues to be missing at key points. So we have this notion that um, I think across the culture right now, stories are so important. Um, and we know that people sharing their story of recovery is important. Um, but to me, that's almost become cliche. Um, so where I look is where is the appropriate story at the appropriate time that helps mix the education that a physician is getting with the experience of recovery. And that's, that's pretty targeted and strategic. That's not just, oh, let's bring physicians in and have them hear a few feel-good stories, which, which I'm glad we've at least gotten there, <laughs> but that's really not gonna change the game. And, and when we talk about systemic issues, it's the same kind of thing is, um, I can't say to Rogers, oh, um, let's back off of some of the pressures that we're putting on our psychiatrists in terms of time with patients um, if I can't bring in a story of where that has been done effectively um, from other places. And, and you know, no one's going to move forward in a hopeless situation, whether it is individuals working one-on-one. -on -one. It's very hard for me if I don't have hope for you to, to move forward in that conversation. It's very hard with these systemic issues if we don't have some leaders that we can look to in the healthcare industry to cause us to make some of those changes. Well, it's, a, it's an important topic. The stakes are high. Mm -hmm. uh, we at the Medical Society are, are invested in this idea and really glad to be working with you and, and with WISE on, on these efforts. And we'll be seeing you again around here in April at our annual meeting. Yep. So we're going to be bringing you back on April 14th during our annual meeting, and you're going to be presenting uh, a CME program entitled Compassion Resilience, A Key to Reducing Stigma. So to learn more about the program, you can visit our website, wisconsinmedicalsociety.org. And for more information about WISE, visit WISE Wisconsin, that's W-I-S-E, Wisconsin.org. And that'll wrap up this edition of WISMED on Call. Thanks so much, Sue, for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. If you like what you heard, you can visit our website, www.wisconsinmedicalsociety.org, and look for future episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got suggestions or feedback, please send an email to communications at wismed.org. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening.